Hey, you know, a few weeks ago, in case you didn't know, our grandson was born. His name is Berechiah Everett Clanton. And I was woke up one morning while we were in Springfield, Missouri, and I just had this thought cross my mind. I'm 65 years old. Will I live to see Berechiah grow up and get married and bring me great-grandsons? And boy, that really, I did the quick math in my head like you've already done. When he's 21, that means I will be 86 years old. Wow, that just kind of threw me for a loop there. So I got up and I went to the restroom and I washed my face and, and got ready for my morning cup of coffee. And I looked in the mirror and I thought to myself, what will I look like when I'm 86 years old? Will I have wrinkles all over my face? What will I look like? And that thought just kind of seized me. And so I sat down with my journal, and sometimes you just need to go with it when you're thinking like that. I sit down with my journal, and I begin to think, what do I want life to look like 20, 25 years from now? And I want to wake up and have morning coffee with Becky, and I want to still be so in love with her and just enjoying the day and enjoying life together. I want to be able to sit on the deck, Pastor Rick, with you, because you will be 96 when I'm 86, and we're going to have coffee, and we're going to talk about all the good things that God has done. We're going to talk about that young buck named Corey and what God has been doing. And we're going to say, isn't it a miracle God used Corey? You know, we're just going to stand there kind of amazed that God used Corey. And we're just, as I process all of this through my mind, I just, it began to be fun. And I said, Lord, will you let me live that long? Of course, I don't know that answer to that question, but as I began to think, then I thought, well, at 85 and 86 years old, I still want to be preaching the gospel. I don't know if I'll have the energy to lead a congregation, but Mark, I want you playing the saxophone beside me when I preach the gospel and playing like you're playing now, just let her rip, you know, and I might have to have a couple of people hold me up, but I am going to preach. And while I was thinking about that, this name may not mean anything to any of you, but one of my heroes was C.M. Ward. And I got to meet uh, C.M. Ward as an older man. And you could ask him questions, and he would tell you exactly what he thought. As a matter of fact, he says, when you get my age, you really don't care what anybody else thinks, period, you know. My sister asked him, we were all out to dinner, she says, why do you gotta always put the napkin inside your shirt? Aren't you worried about somebody, you know, what they might think about you? And he looked at her in that gravelly voice. He said he was a powerful preacher of the gospel. He says, sweetheart, when you get my age, you don't care what anybody thinks. And besides, I'd rather take care of my ties than care about what they think about me. And he just go on like that. And I got to thinking, will I be a grumpy old preacher or will I be a happy old preacher? And I want to be a happy and a joyful preacher because God has been so good. And I just share this because I want you to know it's true. Every day of my life is a miracle. Every day of your life is a miracle too, but every day of my life is especially a miracle because, you know, I just am not supposed to be here. I'm not supposed to be able to be doing what I'm doing. And, and the fact that God has continuously given me health and strength and stamina, I frankly, I'm amazed at the goodness of God in my life. I want to be able to tell those stories about, do you remember how he rescued us? 
I want to be able to tell my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren, and by the way, if I don't make it to that old, if I don't make it to that age, my journal will tell our children and our grandchildren. It will tell you how God rescued us and how He worked in our congregation, what He did in my family's life. I want to be able to play with my grandsons, but most of all, all kidding aside, family, I want to be more in love with Becky and Jesus than I am today. And that's what I want to talk to you about today, is building a marriage that will last. Would you stand with me out of respect for the word of the Lord this morning? I'm going to Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and verse 9. Ecclesiastes, I think, is, has become one of my favorite books in the Bible, because Ecclesiastes really comes right down to the nitty-gritty of life and what it's all about. And most anybody can read the book of Ecclesiastes and relate to what's being said there. But listen to the advice that Solomon gives us in Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Relish life with the spouse you love each and every day of your precarious life. If you're with your wife or your husband, just give them a hug right now, you know? If you're not with them, then, okay, Bill, hugs, not make out, okay? There's just, just, just let them know you love them. Relish life each and every day with the spouse you love. For each day, listen to this, each day is God's gift. Can you say amen to that? Each day is God's gift. It's all you get in exchange for the hard work of staying alive. Now, don't put that in your anniversary card because you don't want to say to your wife, this is all I get for staying alive. You know, you just, you know, that doesn't really cut it. But follow the rest of it. Make the most of each one. Whatever turns up or whatever happens, whatever comes along in your life, we can't predict tomorrow. We know who holds tomorrow, but we can't predict tomorrow. Whatever comes up, whatever chances, whatever the future holds, whatever comes up, you grab hold of life each and every day. You grab hold of your spouse each and every day, and you heartily live out that day. Father, in the name of Jesus, I'm asking you to speak to our hearts this morning. We know that life is not a chance and life is not a gamble, but Lord, life does require a lot of risk. And the riskiest thing that we ever did was to say, I do at an altar to the woman or the man that we chose to spend our life with. And so I pray right now in the name of Jesus Christ that you would just give us the wisdom, especially if we're thinking about giving up, especially if we've grown weary. Father, what a godly marriage and a godly home looks like. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. And everybody said amen, amen, and amen. God bless you. You can be seated. I read the obituary not too long ago of a pilot from the Korean conflict. He was flying bombers over North Korea in the 50s during the conflict. And when he first arrived there, there was a signpost up as you walked out to the planes that all of the pilots read, all of the crew uh, read as they were on their way to the pilot. And it said, two chances, two chances. One is that you make it to base or you'll be shot down. Two is if you're shot down, you have two chances. You survive the crash or you won't. Three, if you survive the crash, you have two chances. You'll evade the enemy or you'll be captured. Four, if you're captured, you'll have two chances. You'll live through being a prisoner or you won't. If you die as a prisoner, well, you still have two chances, heaven or hell. And boy, as I reflected upon what was written in that obituary about his life as a pilot, 
And the fact that his plane was shot down and that he and his entire crew, though badly injured, were rescued by U.S. forces out of North Korea. The fact that he lived those and he taught those to his children and they left that in his obituary really grabbed hold of me and had me thinking, especially when I read what I just read to you from Ecclesiastes, because we do not know what holds tomorrow. And I submit to you, it is the riskiest choice you'll ever make when you ask a man or a woman to be your wife or your husband as it may be. In the book of Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, God says to men, he says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Now, guys, I've preached on this a lot of times through the years, but I want you to really think about this and think about how you love and how you treat your wife. Husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. And throughout the week, I've been meditating on how God shows his love, how Jesus showed his love to the church. And I've compared my love for Becky in our marriage to this passage of Scripture, and I find myself coming up so short so often and found myself having to pray and having to just get on my knees and sometimes just slip in here by myself where I could pray freely and just say, Lord, help me to be more like Jesus. For he gave up his life. He gave up his passions. He gave up his pleasures. He gave up his will. He would pray, not my will, but thine be done, Father. He gave up his life for her, the church, to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, this is a tough, tough command. It comes from the Lord's on lips, and we would be wise to pay attention to it. For those who are married, I have this command that it comes from, not from me, but from the Lord. A wife must not leave her husband, but if she does leave him, let her remain single or else be reconciled to him. And the husband must not leave his wife. Now, Paul is writing there about women or men in the church who got married in Corinth and they asked Paul a question, if we've given our hearts to Jesus and, and we were married to an unbeliever, should we stay with that believing husband or wife, or should we leave that husband or wife because they're an unbeliever? Does it make our marriage unholy? And Paul says, no, you stay with that unbelieving wife or that unbelieving husband because your union to them makes the marriage holy and your children holy. But he does make room. He says, if that unbelieving spouse chooses to part, in other words, they're, they're hindering your faith. They won't let you serve the Lord. And through the years, I've had those encounters where there's been, I've never had a woman do this to a man, but where men have told their wives they can't go to church, they can't worship the Lord. As a matter of fact, tried to find, and I said, leave, leave, because I'm thinking of one case right now. I said, God gives you room to leave because what he wanted her to do when she gave her heart to Christ was so immoral and so wrong. And he was just a bully. And so he's writing particularly here, but he's reflecting back on the words of Jesus that we'll get to in a few minutes about the sanctity of a marriage and a spiritual transaction that takes place in heaven long before the consummation in the marriage bed. You see, whenever you get married, you need to really be serious and think about this. You need to enter into the marriage covenant thoughtfully, prayerfully, and if I might add this word, fearfully. You see, when I counsel with couples 12 weeks before 
I do their wedding ceremonies, and I'm looking at some of you in here that I've done your children's weddings. I'm looking at some that I'm going to be doing their weddings in the future. And as I contemplate that, I tell every single one of them in the 12 weeks of premarital counseling, don't take this lightly. Think this through. You've got to do it prayerfully. You've got to do it fearfully because you're talking about spending your life. This is the most hazardous decision you'll ever make. I would say to a police officer, the decision to get married is more hazardous than being a police officer. I would say to my son, who is a captain in the United States Army, the decision to marry is more hazardous than being a captain in the United States Army. I would say to my second son, who went to Nepal and served and spent time building homes and churches and schools in Nepal for over a year, I, I would say to him, son, are you sure? Because this is the most hazardous decision that you're going to ever make in your life. And so make it prayerfully. But when you make it, understand you're making a life time commitment. I mean, good grief. Most of us, when we sign a mortgage for a house, we sign for 15 years or 20 years or the max 30 years, and we think, what a long time. But that compares, that pales in comparison to the longevity of a marriage. You see, the reason that God says it like this is, is number one, you need to understand, your Father in heaven designed you. You're not an accident. Our Heavenly Father designed us, and He created us, and He made us in His image. Pastor Corey and Pastor Rick bought off wonderfully well last week in the message that we were built for relationships. But of all the creatures and all the creation that God had made, the only thing that God said was not good was when Adam was alone. And he looked at it and said, it's not good that Adam's alone. Now, Becky has her own private commentary on that. Becky looks at that verse of Scripture, and she says, God took one look at Adam and said, huh, I can do better than that. And he created man. I mean, he created woman. And obviously, Adam agreed because he looked at her and went, whoa, man, that's good work right there, God. You see, God designed us, and the purpose was for oneness, that we could share our lives with somebody. A moment ago, I told you there's a spiritual transaction that takes place, and I tell these young couples, when you stand in front of me at the altar, and you know, I love doing weddings. Look at me. This is important. I am closer to the couple at that moment than anybody else is. And I remind them, I'm standing in the place of the Lord. I'm standing as an ordained pastor because God has called me. There's something different about coming to the church and asking your pastor to marry you than going to a justice of the peace or somebody that does a fly-by-night business at a wedding chapel that got some license off of a quick site online. But you're standing in church, you're standing in the presence of God, and at that moment, I hear everything they say. I see their backs are to you, but I see everything, and sometimes I remind them, I'll say, if you're might, everybody else can hear what you're saying. That moment when they kneel and they take communion together, and I serve them communion, and I pray the pastoral blessing and ask God's blessings upon their lives, there is a spiritual transaction that takes place that they become one in Christ at that very moment. Not when they consummate. They become one in flesh. When they consummate that marriage and the beauty of sexual union in the marriage bed, and we talk through that process, and I want them to know, I want this to be the most miraculous night. I want this to be the most magical night in your life. 
It may not be the best night of your married life, but this is the night where the two of you come together as one and you consummate that marriage in the beauty of sexual union that God said, if you will trust me, it is so much better to save sex for marriage between a husband and a wife if you'll trust me with that. And they always make this commitment, we're going to trust God. Something happens, though, as they live together, and I write to them about this, and I draw a diagram for them, and I say, but as you do life together, as you pray together, as you play together, as you suffer together, as you enjoy successes together, as you win together, as you have defeats together, as you go through life, you have an emotional oneness. So there's a spiritual oneness, a physical oneness, and an emotional oneness that develops and I talked with a couple that I married in this church well over 10 years ago, and I asked them how it was going in their lives, and she says, Pastor, he's the best husband, and she began to tell me all the good things. He's the best. She's the best wife, and I laughed. I rejoiced with them as they told me stories because they've gone through that first two years of I hate this word, but it's kind of, it's mechanical. It's adjustment where you get used to one another, one another's idiosyncrasies. They've gone through that famous seven-year itch. They've passed that 10-year mark, and they really know what it likes to, to be loved and to love and to have children together. It's why Jesus would say this then in Matthew 19, 5, after talking about the spiritual, the physical, and the emotional. He said, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. That spiritual takes place immediately. That physical takes place immediately. But that emotional takes time to build, to suffer together, to pray together, to play together, to work together, to win together, to win together, to suffer defeat together, to go through all the, the ups and downs of life, the losses that take place. But it's what brings us into that emotional oneness. And then Jesus issues a stern warning. He says, basically, he says, you can't take what God has joined together. You can't take what God has glued together. You can't take that and just rip it apart and think that there's not going to be pain and suffering because divorce brings such deep pain and such deep suffering. When people are thinking and contemplating divorce and they're imagining what life would be like without their husband or they're imagining what life would be like without their wife and they're going through all of that, you see, the deception of divorce is this. Divorce is like an amputation. There's less of you. There's less of you. We were watching Albert Lynn, the archaeologist who uses a lot of science and technology. We were watching his explorations of the Holy Lands and the sites of the biblical stories. And, and Albert Lynn has lost a leg. He's an amputee. And you can read about the suffering and the pain that happened on an archaeological research and how he lost his leg and the phantom pains that he dealt with. You see, in divorce, it's really harder than death. Because in divorce, as one psychologist says, the corpse is still walking around. You see that person. You see that individual. And I can't begin to tell you through over 40 years of pastoral ministry of how many people have come to me and said, oh, pastor, if I could do it again, I would have had better sense. I wouldn't have done it. I wouldn't have left my wife. I wouldn't have left my husband. And the people who suffer the most are sometimes the children because there's less of you. And I know Jesus gives exceptions. I know Paul gives exceptions. 
But those are the rare exceptions as a pastor I have to deal with. Those are the rare exceptions that I have to deal with. Most of the time, it's just simply because somebody has decided to be deceived, and it's not about abuse. It's not about immorality. It's just about we don't love each other like we used to. We don't spend time together like we used to. You see, friends, everybody gets weary along the way, but we have to go back and look at the owner's manual at what God says. I know that what I'm saying is not very popular in the world. I know that what I'm saying is not very popular with even some people who say, if you're not happy, God wants you to be happy. No, God wants you to be holy. And if you're holy, you'll discover happiness. And I know for some of you watching today, you may have been divorced, like some people that I pastor who've been married three and four times, one person five times, and I'll tell you the same thing I'll tell them. God is the God of the second, third, fourth, fifth chance. God will forgive you of your sins. You can start over, although if you've been married five times, like I told this other individual, you probably really need to go through some deep counseling before you got married again. I would tell anybody to run from you. I love you, but that's what I told them. And they said, oh, pastor, I agree with you. I, you know... I just want you to build a marriage that will last. And what God's word says will stand the test of time because God knows what's best for us. I can just barely remember a television show called Father Knows Best. Does anybody remember that show? Father Knows Best. And there were times when I would debate with my dad as a kid. The show was long after television. My mom, she could see my face turning red. She could see my dad's face turning red. My mom would lay her hand on my hand because I sat, you know, down at the other end of the table. She, she'd say, your father knows best, hon. I hated to hear those words because that was her way of saying, you're going to be in a heap of big trouble if you don't shut your mouth. <laughs> Father, and I want to tell you this morning, your heavenly Father does know best. Look at what he says in Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. God has a future, God has a hope, and God wants to bless and prosper your marriage with joy unspeakable and full of glory this morning. That's the plan and the will of God. That's why he created marriage Marriage is God's idea. It's not the world's idea. And as a Christian, when I gave my heart to Christ, when I gave my heart to Jesus so many years ago, I submitted my ego. I submitted my will. I was willing to pray what Jesus was willing to pray, although I didn't know what all it entailed. Not my will, but thine be done. And as a Christian, I confess and trust God's word. I trust the Bible. That's what a Christian does. They trust the wisdom of God as opposed to their own wisdom. They trust the wisdom of God as opposed to the world's wisdom. Now, the world may try to redefine marriage, but God will never redefine marriage. The world may try to tell you if you're not happy, just get out. You can find another partner. I'm going to tell you something. Whatever those issues are, you're going to carry them with you. And again, I'm not speaking about abuse, and I'm not speaking about immorality right here. You trust God's word. You see, when Jesus prayed, not my will, but thine be done, he was saying, Lord, what I'm feeling right now, it wasn't the cross, it wasn't the suffering, it was becoming sin for us. It was becoming sin for us. And I don't know that we really get that. I don't know that I ever have really fully, I have tried to wrap my mind around that, that Christ became sin for us. 
because I tend to compare myself and go, well, I'm not this, I'm not that, I never did this, I never did that. I'm no Hitler, I'm no Pol Pot. And yet, as Mel Gibson so aptly said when he made that movie, The Passion of Christ, he said, I chose to take the hammer and I chose to take the spike because it wasn't the Jews that crucified Christ. It wasn't the Romans that crucified Christ. It was my sins that nailed him to the tree. What a powerful statement. And what Jesus was struggling with was not the cross. It was becoming sin for us. And so everything God did, he did so that not only you could be saved, but your marriage could be happy and healthy and holy. It is why I say that we trust his word. Look at the Bible in Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 3. Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God's, of Jacob's God. There he will teach us his ways, and we will walk in his paths. What we're doing this morning, we've come to the house of God. We're learning of God's ways. We're learning what God wants us to know. And then we have to make a decision this morning. And that is, we will walk in his paths. Would you say that with me? We will walk in his paths. One more time. We will walk in his paths. And the Bible tells us in Psalms 1 that the man or woman who chooses to walk in the paths of God, they will be blessed. And Pastor Rick, this is what I'm counting on for you and I again getting to 86 and 96 if the Lord lets us live that long, is that the Bible says that when we are old, we shall continue to bear fruit. When we're old, our leaves shall not wither. And when we're old, we'll still bend like the palm tree. That means we're going to be flexible, Pastor Rick. You see, that's what I'm counting on, that Becky and I will be able to flex. Rick and I will be able to sit on the deck and drink coffee and talk about all the good things that God has done in our lives. Well, let me give you six quick action steps in the time that's remaining that you can take for your marriage today. And number one is, I've already talked about it quite a bit, so I'll be very brief with this. Obey the Word of God. Even if you don't understand it, obey the Word of God. You want to make your marriage a happy and a holy marriage? Put God first in your marriage. Honor the Lord. You honor Him today by coming to His house to worship Him and listening to the Word of the Lord. Honor Him by getting up in the morning and saying, Lord, I want to love you more today than I did yesterday. I want to serve you more today than I did yesterday. Honor the Lord by bringing your tithes and offerings to Him. Honor the Lord by praying for your family. Honor the Lord by choosing to let no coarse language come out of your mouth. Choose to be an encourager and to bless others. These, you can find all all of these are the Ten Commandments, but honor the Lord by guarding your marriage. Honor the Lord by loving your wife or your husband. Your word is a lamp to guide my feet and a light for my path, Psalms 119 says. And then number two, live in close fellowship with each other. It's a new day. Choose to affirm your wife or your husband. You know, choose to do something good for them today. You say, well, I did something nice for them yesterday. Well, that's great you did something yesterday was nice for them. Do something nice for them today. You see, we're building on the days. That's the key to a happy marriage, is that we build upon those days. We build upon the ones that came before. You know, as I was thinking about this this morning, I kind of got convicted. Honey, I'm sorry. I bought you beautiful roses from a touch of class in Trenton and for Valentine's, and I should have replaced those roses. 
but I haven't been to Kroger lately, so I'll get you some roses. And, but what I'm saying is you, you build from day to day to day. Don't rest on yesterday's laurels and say, well, I did something good last month. It's kind of like the, the woman who told her husband, he says, you don't ever tell me you love me anymore. And he says, I told you so 20 years ago. If I change my mind, I'll let you know. That's a sure way to fail in marriage. Choose to bless, affirm, live in close fellowship with each other. If we are living in the light as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. There's something about Becky and I praying together that has been good for our children. There's something about Becky and I praying together that has been good for our congregation. There's something good about Becky and I praying together that's been good for our community. And I'll tell you something else. There's something about Becky and I praying together that's been good for your children and grandchildren and everything that I just said is true as you do this with your husband or wife in this church. It's how blessings abound. See, Pastor, how to do it? Number one, communicate clearly. Everybody enjoys a fitting reply. It's wonderful to say the right thing at the right time. All of these are in the app if you want to get them later. But everyone enjoys a fitting reply. You know, when someone does something that makes tell them what it was, you know, if your wife made a really delicious dinner, don't just say, honey, the food was good. Tell her what you liked about the food. If your husband does something for you and, you know, maybe you just expected it, but the fact that he just went out and finally cleaned up the garage without you having to bug him about it. And I tell you, the garage just sends shivers up and down my spine as I think about that. And I looked in the garage this morning getting ready for church, and I thought, oh, spring is here. That means i got to attack the garage. <laughs> You know, just, but communicate clearly, honey, how much you appreciate what I do in that garage when I do get around to it. Look for peace signs because sometimes when you're, sometimes when you're in an argument, you know, and everybody has arguments and you say, Pastor, how do you handle arguments with Becky? I just go, yes, dear, yes, dear, yes, dear. You know, look for peace signs. Because typically in an argument, someone is trying to put out a peace sign and say, look, I don't want to argue about this. And if you're, if you're strong-willed, if you're type A, you want to get it all out on the table. You want to deal with it all right now. We're going to clear the air. When anybody says, let's clear the air, friends, that's time to run. That means they're about to take 30 years and just vomit all over you, and you're going to be all sticky, and they're going to feel all better like they've done something good. Learn to look for peace signs. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. And then learn the power of all. And all is just an acronym for affection, warmth, and encouragement. You know, those little touches of affection during the day, the phone calls during the day just to say, I love you. The card, I, I brought them with me this morning just as a reminder for myself, but I brought a card that Becky recently showed the children in Timber Ridge that she wrote me while we were dating. And I bought the card from last year's anniversary that's still sitting on the bookshelf in my home study. And she says on that card, I remember our first kiss. <laughs> I remember it too. Matter of fact, we've been dating about three months. Was it three months? Yeah, three months before I ever gave her the first kiss, her mother thought I was just leading her along because I hadn't kissed her yet. And I kissed her at Indian Springs and in no, High Falls in Georgia. And I kissed her there at High Falls, and it scared me so bad when I kissed her, I jerked my head back. And I still remember that. But that card 
represents 46 years, 45 years of marriage, a year of engagement. And I bought those two cards because they say to me, God, you've been faithful. Relish life with the spouse you love. Be dependent and sensitive to the Holy Spirit. Be dependent and sensitive to the Holy Spirit. You see, the, the, the way Jesus lived his life was whatever the Father wanted him to say, he said it. Whatever the Father didn't want him to say, he didn't say it. Whatever the Father wanted him to do, he did it. Whatever the Father didn't want him to do, he didn't do. I mean, this was his own admission. He says, whatever I see my Father doing, I do. Whatever I hear my Father saying, I, I say. So the next time you get into an argument, this is what I mean about being dependent and sensitive to the Holy Spirit. The next time you get into an argument, give your spouse room to say, is that what the Father is saying to you? Is that what the Father is speaking through you? Is that what the Father is doing through you? Give them room to say that. Because sometimes in the heat of an argument, we do things and say things that are not Christ-like. And every single one of us want to be like Jesus. And when you're like Jesus, you're quick to listen, you're slow to anger, and you're always ready to forgive. You're quick to listen, you're slow to anger, and you're always ready to forgive. And when you forgive, you don't hold it against them. This morning when I was praying, and I have my devotions on Sunday morning, just like I do every Sunday morning, and I said, Lord, thank you. I know you know all things, so you must know all the sins I've ever done. But you never remind me of my sins. You never remember them against me. You say you remove them from me as far as the east is from the west. That is a powerful way for a man or a woman to live in a marriage. When we don't bring up the past, we just keep looking for the future. And then finally this word, like, Becky, if you'll come on up, we're out of time. Guard your heart. Guard your heart. Guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. You'll be tempted. You'll struggle with things. Somebody will turn your head. I had a man call me and tell me his wife called him and said to him, says, I need you to pray for me. I saw a very attractive man today, and it stirred me in a way that frightened me. And I said, what did you do? He said, I prayed for her. I said, how did it make you feel? He said, Pastor, it made me feel so good because she trusts me with her feelings and emotions. I said, did you feel threatened by that? Did you feel intimidated by that? He said, of course not. He says, I trust my wife, and I trust God. You see, when you're tempted, don't run from Jesus, but run to Jesus. When you're tempted, ask your husband or your wife to pray for you. That breaks the, the devil works in darkness. The devil works in secrecy. But sit down with your journal, write down your emotions. Write down what thoughts or what prompted those feelings. Write down why you're feeling that way. And then when you do that, identify what needs to change, what you want to change. Now what I'm telling you is very common sense, but only the wise will do it. As a matter of fact, if you let your marriage get into a place 
where you're thinking about giving it up, every good psychologist is going to tell you to do what I'm telling you to do now. And it's just a healthy way to process what you're thinking. Say, Pastor, what's the answer? Well, this is God's answer. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable, right and pure, lovely and admirable. You see, as I go down the list with Becky, oh, every one of these things, true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, admirable, just thing after thing comes to mind. And I know her. I know her. I've known her since she was a baby. She knows me. He says, think about the things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Now, here's the, here's the clincher. Keep putting into practice all you have learned or received. So I'm asking you to practice these things in your marriage. And then the God of peace will be with you. And I'm going to tell you something. I say this not as a boast. I say this with the most gratitude. God has been with Becky and I. God has been with us. And God will be with you. Learn the power of waiting upon the Lord together. Have a prayer journal and a prayer space. And then if you'll stand with me this morning, learn to delight in the Lord. Learn to delight in the Lord. Take delight in the Lord, and He will give you your heart's desires. What kind of marriage do you want? As a matter of fact, now listen carefully. If you're not married, why don't you start journaling the kind of marriage that you want? If you have children and they're getting older, and, and I do this with some of our young adults, what kind of marriage do you want? What kind of wife do you want? What kind of husband do you want? Then how can you live like the kind of man or woman you want that husband or wife to be? You want your children to see you putting into practice. I told the first service the same thing I'm going to tell you this morning. And that is, whenever I do counseling with a young couple, I tell them, I said, you see, I'm up against really impossible odds here. Because 80% of everything you believe about marriage, you've learned from your mother and your father. Which means... If they had a healthy, happy, holy marriage, this is going to be a breeze for you. But if their marriage was not happy, healthy, and holy, you're going to have to learn how to put into practice these things in your life because you've learned defense mechanisms. You've learned not to expect God's best. You've learned to expect that there's going to be conflicts, or maybe you've even learned that this is just going to be a starter marriage as the current popular saying goes. And we have a deep time of prayer together. So the key to all of this is delighting in the Lord. Delighting in the Lord more than you do your wife or your husband. Take delight in the Lord, and He will give you your heart's desires. I move in the pulpit for a reason. Our marriage is not perfect. But it is happy, it's holy, and it's healthy. But I was reading a speech by Justice Scalia recently. 
and you're getting something the first service didn't get. And in his speech, he said, to be perfect as God is perfect doesn't imply that we ever reach a state of perfection, but it implies that we do the most perfect job we're capable of doing. He says, if you peel potatoes for a living, peel the perfect potato. If you flip hamburgers for a living, flip hamburgers and cook the best hamburgers ever. If you preach the gospel, he says, work hard to preach the best message you're capable of. And I thought, wow. And if you're married, work to have the most heavenly marriage that anybody could ever have. So here's what I want you to do this morning. If you're with your wife or your husband, would you just join hands together? And I want you to pray a prayer of blessing over them. If you're not married, why don't you pray for your future spouse? And if you don't want to be married and you're single, then why don't you just pray for all the rest of these marriages in here this morning? And I'm going to wait just a moment while you pray. Pray for their joy. Pray for their happiness. Pray blessings upon them. Pray the peace of God. The peace of God is all of his wholeness, all of his salvation, all of his fullness, all of his prosperity and his healing. Pray that over your spouse. You know, while they're praying, if you're not a Christian, this is a great time right now to give your heart to Christ. You see, my prayer is that as a congregation and that Becky and I, that our marriages show you just how much Christ loves the church, that he'll never leave you, he'll never forsake you. One of my sons, when he was about five years old, asked me one time, he says, Daddy, will you ever divorce my wife, my mother? One of his little buddies' father left the home. And I looked at him and said, of course not. That's one thing you can count on. I'll never leave your mother or leave you. And he just buried his head in my chest and cried. And I promise you this, God will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He is not ashamed of you. He loves you, and nobody will love you like Jesus does. So pray this prayer with me right now. Say, Father, I don't understand it all, but this morning I do understand that you love me. You became sin for me. You took my sins upon yourself. I believe, Lord, that you will give me new life and new hope. And, you know, for someone, I just felt prompted, you saying, you know, I prayed this prayer before. God is the God of the second, the third, the fourth chance. Trust him this morning. You want to pray because God is working with you. Say, Lord, I commit my life to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen, amen, and amen. Well, may the Lord bless you. 
May the Lord keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you. May he make you prosperous and productive in everything you do. And may the Lord give you long life to see your great-grandchildren come and bring their grandchildren to you as well. The Lord bless you. You're dismissed this morning.